listeners. This is Dan Kowalski, host of the Alaska Story Project. The motivation and inspiration for this project boils down to the power of stories to connect, to pique our curiosity, to become fascinated, to stimulate our imagination. Storytelling weaves together the fabric of our collective human experience. We're recording this in a time of increasing darkness for the human condition. We're in the midst of a historic shift as a despot has unleashed mind-bending brutality and suffering on the souls of Ukrainians and also hapless Russians. The Alaska Story Project is dedicated to offer stories that have the power to connect and heal as something of a counterpoint or antidote to what's all over the news right now. For this podcast, Alaskan author Hank Lentfer shares some of his original writing. He's lived a life never far from the world, both rich and raw, that's uniquely Alaskan. He's also part of a community of writers working with the themes of being human, inseparable from the larger living planet. Hank Lentfer. When Dan asked me to reflect on the role of stories in my life, I immediately thought of the lines from Barry Lopez's fable, Crow and Weasel. And Barry writes in that book, if stories come to you, care for them. Learn to give them away where they are needed. Sometimes a person needs a story more than food to stay alive. The story that's deepest in my memory is right on the edge of what I can recall. Takes place um, up in Utiakvik. It was springtime. A bowhead whale had been killed, and my family, like everybody else in town, got on their snow machines and went across the sea ice to the open water to lend a hand pulling that whale up onto the ice. And a big block and tackle was set up, and even me, this little three, four-year-old kid, was given a spot on the line, and we all put our muscles into it and pulled in this whale emerged from the black water and it was a festive time as the animal was butchered and food was cooked right there on the ice. And at some point in all that activity, someone noticed that the ice had cracked and all the people in that whale were in danger of drifting off and losing contact with the mainland. So there's this scrambling as People jumped on their machines and raced back towards uh, solid ground. And at one point, um, there's a couple men helping all the machines and sleds over a steep, jumbled pressure ridge. And I was uh, kicked off of my father's sled. And one of those men just grabbed me and threw me on to the next sled. And we everybody made it. Um, we all got back and the whale was eventually recovered. But that scene, that earliest memory, uh, I begin a book um, 
that was published a couple years ago called Raven's Witness, The Alaska Life of Richard K. Nelson. And I open with that scene on the ice and that scramble back to the mainland. And I write this. It's been nearly 50 years since I last experienced a Nilakatuk, the multi-day party that swept through Utiakvik following each whale harvest. I can still taste the oily bounce of muktuk and recall the rush of the blanket toss, people thrown impossibly high, arms spinning, backlit by clouds. I can still hear the snap of sticks on skin drums and feel the rhythmic stomp of dancers' feet. We all, I believe, hunger for such close-knit community. We yearn to pull together with neighbors and celebrate our collective success. So why do we find ourselves living in such rancorous times? How did stories of unity get buried by the din of voices tearing us apart? When did caring for our country become a partisan issue? And by country, I don't mean a flag, song, or pledge, but our actual home ground, the soil, rivers, forests, tundra, air, and climate that make life possible. In her book, A Paradise Built in Hell, Rebecca Solnit explores how disasters, both human-made and natural, shatter the patterns that isolate and divide. In towns flattened by winds and cities leveled by bombs, people emerge from the rubble and become their brother's keeper. In helping each other survive, she writes, they find a purposefulness and connectedness that brings joy even amid death chaos, fear, and loss. When the ice cracked, my Nupiak neighbors sought solid ground. But how do we respond to the widening split between economic desire and ecological reality? Where is solid ground when coal plants in Kentucky deepen droughts in Kenya? We cannot bridge the growing gulf between economics and ecology until we see personal well-being as inseparable from the planet's health. We must pull together, expanding the circle of caring beyond immediate family and neighbors. Empathy, the 14th Dalai Lama has said, is the basis of human coexistence. It is my belief that human development relies on cooperation, not competition. So how do we widen empathy to include strangers? How do we swell our affinity for community to include other creatures? Stories. We need better stories. The stories of separation that got us into this mess are not the stories that will get us out. We need stories that illuminate the truth of connections to each other and to this precious blue planet, our only home. We need to reject narratives of division. We need storytellers who blur boundaries, expand empathy, and stretch our capacity for caring. Now, this book, uh, Raven's Witness, is really a collection of uh, stories that I heard from a good friend of mine, Richard Nelson, who is a storyteller uh, who can blur boundaries and expand empathy. And like any good storyteller, he first had to learn to listen. 
And as an anthropologist, he listened to other cultures. As a naturalist, he listened to other creatures. And he helped me hone my own capacity for listening. And we spent uh, years together camping and recording the sounds and voices and stories of the greater-than-human neighbors here in Alaska. So this next little uh, recording was my attempt to integrate some of those voices um, into a little narrative. So enjoy this, uh, the 10 sounds that make you feel more alive. Imagine Louis Armstrong with lungs the size of a Volkswagen and a trumpet the size of a hollow cedar tree. Now imagine Louis pouring every hour of practice, every smoky hall performance, every ounce of his huge soul into a single pure note set free over a mere calm sea. That's the sound that occasionally lifts from the nose of a humpback whale on a late summer evening. Hear it once, and it will long echo against the walls of memory. Barnacles. Those crusted critters clustered on intertidal rocks are at first listen, not the most vocal of species. But past the shadow of your body over a low tide boulder on a still morning and you'll hear a wave of whispers. All those little lives drawing tight the fortress of their shells to keep the looming monster at bay. Inside the barnacle's sharp white walls is the fleshy goo of the critter itself. You'd have to eat a thousand to make a meal, which is just what bears do. Mushing the helpless crustaceans with a paw and then licking the crushed mess from the rock. Barnacles being crunched to death is not honestly that compelling a sound. But when it's happening between the molars of a 600-pound bear and you're close enough to hear, it becomes a hair-raising, smile-inducing, how did I get so lucky to be alive, racket? Paddle up an inlet filled with glacial ice and listen closely as you float by each bobbing berg. Some, not all, hiss and pop, releasing teeny bubbles of air captured by snowflakes in a storm that swirled before white-wigged men declared this country's independence. Atmospheric burps from another time bubbling by the bow of your boat.
Every minute of the last million years, a sandhill crane somewhere on the planet has called out in a cackling, bugling brilliance, a seamless lineage. Lay your body beneath the sky of circling cranes and ride their voices back through a landscape prowled by short-faced bears and giant sloths. Listen to the glaciers come and go, other species rise and fall. As the cranes slip to specks on the edge of hearing, follow their fading voices to the horizon of dinosaurs. In a beachside meadow on a day without a twitch of wind, lie down and wait. In between the rumbling roar of bees, listen for the delicate rustle of dragonflies in flight and the quick click click as they nip the wings from their afternoon snack of fresh mosquito. Wait for the sun to dry the seed pods of lupin to the snapping point. When they finally twist open, listen for the pellets of seeds raining in all directions. And, if you're really lucky, just after a raven passes, air rushing through each primary feather, you might hear the snuffling rustle of a hunting shrew and the triumphant crunch of impossibly teeny teeth tearing into the dull armor of a beetle's back. And the sound we cannot hear enough. Two friends at the campfire, eyes and ears filled to bursting with the day's adventure. And when one friend says something with only the teeniest trace of actual humor, the other responds with a belly-jiggling chuckle that catches in the first friend's throat and causes him to snort like a pig, and soon both friends are laughing like they haven't laughed since the third grade, laughing at laughter herself the mischievous child born of the marriage of all that is gorgeous in the world and how preciously little time we have to soak it all in. Thanks to Richard Nelson, who recorded many of the sounds in this little production. And thanks, too, to the National Park Service and Friends of Glacier Bay for sponsoring this two-year recording project. Oh, we missed our calling, man. We should have been TV producers. <laughs>
If I were imprisoned in a windowless cell and allowed out for just one week a year, I'd choose seven days centered in September. I'd come home to my Alaska cabin in the woods and clean a few pounds of spruce needles out of my neglected kayak, oil up a fishing reel, pack a three-day lunch, and paddle upriver. I'd float to the top of the tide, tie the boat to an alder, and follow the bare shit splattered trail upstream. I'd sit on the wet grass, listen to the rain tap away on my sou'wester, and watch for the deep flash of coho in a dark pool. I'd then pray for luck, unwrap a sandwich, and wait. The luck I pray for and the answer I await is the voice of cranes. Though on the wing, the answer comes not so much from above as from behind. Behind time, back before primates even existed, with their insane potential to burden their brains with thoughts like being imprisoned in a windowless cell. Before time was even a thing to be named, served, lived out, endured, or enjoyed. At any given moment, through ice ages and asteroid strikes, sun flares and volcanic eruptions, night and day, fall and winter, there has been one, if not a thousand cranes calling somewhere on the planet. That long lineage of sound drops from the sky each fall as sandhills migrate from Alaska tundra to California cornfields. Only when that ten-million-year-old procession of prayers reaches my ear would I set down my sandwich, rig the pole, stand up, and fish. The moon, using that inexplicable, invisible force called gravity, bulges the ocean's surface like a newly pregnant belly. When the earth spins through that bulge, we call it high tide. A coho is a ten-pound distillation of herring, needlefish, plankton bits, near misses with the ivory teeth of killer whales and sea lions, and a thousand revolutions through that moon-induced bulge. When the earth tilts away from the sun each fall, a million cohos slide from the ocean and slip up any stream still clean enough to support life. When one of those sleek, tight bodies grabs the other end of a monofilament strand, it's hard to know precisely who is tugging on what. Most of the year, I don't even think of the Earth spinning at a bazillion miles per hour. But the confluence of cranes and cohos, the simultaneous flush of fish upstream and birds down south, changes everything. During an otherwise normal afternoon, I'll suddenly become gloriously dizzy with awareness of our careening planet. When I lie on my back to watch the cranes, I tell myself I'm doing so to alleviate strain on my neck. I trick myself into believing I could stand up if I wanted to, that I'm not afraid of being flicked into space like a muddy drop of water off a bicycle tire. The tension of a coho pulling your arms down while the cranes draw your senses up is like electroshock therapy. Things like presidential debates, insurance deductibles, and urgent emails get fried first. 
If the coho is big and the flock bigger, the amperage cranks and starts burning through models of global warming and tallies of corporate greed. If the fish just came in with the tide and still has a full vitality of the sea, if the cranes are skimming just above the treetops, their voices so close and loud that the sound tickles our long-neglected reptilian brainstem, then the voltage can burn even our sodden obsession with mortality. Those few seconds before the line breaks or the birds pass, is the window I am constantly trying to retrofit into my cell. Such remodeling is hard work, but with enough cranes, cohos, and luck, I believe it possible to live in a glass house. And with even more cranes, cohos, and luck, I believe it possible to break all those carefully constructed panels and let the wind blow on through. As a further riff, I asked Hank what makes a good story. Think of a tree. And if you're living in southeast Alaska, that tree is most likely to be a conifer. Hemlock or spruce or a cedar tree. Walk up to that tree in your imagination. Put your hands on its rough bark and shimmy up that thing get as high as you can rest in some of those big high branches and shimmy out to the end of that branch and feel it bend under your weight and put your face next to the twigs and now focus your eye on a single needle and remember that on the underside of that needle are little teeny holes that are taking in your breath and puffing out teeny clouds of oxygen. Now shimmy back down to earth and imagine the roots underneath your feet, these massive bands of wood getting smaller and smaller, poking through the dirt, intertwining with the roots of the neighboring trees. Now tell me precisely, where does that tree begin and end? I'm drawn to stories that blur boundaries, stories that work against our tendency to cut the fabric of life into neat squares and organize it, label people as Democrats or Republicans or evangelicals or atheists, um, or the world is natural or unnatural. So any story that helps stitch those uh, squares back into their proper orientation. And a good story, in my mind, reveals the pain and the folly and darkness of isolation. Or a good story can illuminate and celebrate the restorative powers of connection. And the best stories do both.
So pay attention. Hone in on any story that blurs boundaries or awakens us from the delusion of separateness. Retell the story at the dinner table, at church, the grocery store. And remember this. You don't have to write a book or produce a podcast to be a storyteller. Our lives are stories. Every decision, each interaction, the choice between generosity and greed, between gratitude or grievance, kindness or callousness, tells a story. And our stories are not finished. We get to write a little each day. I try and remember that when I wake up that the hours in front of me are a blank page and I get to choose the story I tell before I go to bed. Thank you. Award-winning author, sound designer, dad, husband, hunter, skier, gardener, naturalist, Hank Lentford. And special thanks to Christian Arthur for original music. Much more information will be in the podcast show notes at www.alaskastoryproject.com. And if you're resonating with this, please share it with friends, family, and colleagues through your favorite podcast player. And until next time, a moment of hope and compassion for the souls in Eastern Europe. Thanks for listening. Be well.